Save big money when you start your next project today at Menards. Convert your current recessed lighting with energy-saving LED downlights from Fight Electric. They're bright and install easily in just minutes. They also go from regular lighting to nightlight mode with just a simple flip of a switch. Save big on all Fight Lighting products now at Menards. Shop our lighting options today in-store and on Menards.com. Save big money at Menards. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. This is the story of America's bloodiest prison, told by the people who lived it, both inside and outside its gates. The brutal history as you've never heard it before, from its origin as a slave plantation to its gradual growth as the bloodiest maximum security prison in America. To those outside its gates, it's known as Louisiana State Penitentiary at Angola. But to those who have spent time inside its gates, it's known as Bloody Angola. Come with us as we take you through the gates and give you a first-hand look at not only the stories of the stabbings, rapes, executions, escapes, and murders you won't find on any TV show or the internet, but also the murders, abductions, attacks, and hostage situations of the staff and their families, otherwise known by the convicts as free people. Bloody Angola is a comprehensive, no-hold-barred podcast. It takes you on a journey through time, from its inception as a slave plantation to America's largest maximum security prison, where 80% of its population will die inside the wire. Get mentally prepared. Sit back and listen as we cover these stories in detail. In ways you've never heard before from people that lived it, breathed it, and died with it. Bloody Angola. Warning. Bloody Angola is a podcast covering actual events and is intended for mature audiences. The subject matter discussed in no way reflects the personal opinions of the host or sponsors of this podcast. Thank you. Hey, everyone, and welcome back to another edition of Bloody Angola, a podcast 142 years in the making. The complete story of America's bloodiest prison. And I'm Jim Chapman. And I'm Woody Overton. So, folks, today we are bringing you a story that I'm going to be honest. When I researched this, we had one of our fans on Facebook mention in a comment, and we read all those comments, That's and right. she mentioned in a post, We, I would love to see y'all do an episode on Archie Williams, who I was unfamiliar with, but she also attached a link from a, he was a contestant on a show that we're going to get into in a little while. Of course, the first thing I did was go watch that link. And it touched my heart. 
I actually saw that when it was live and it happened and, and I heard the basis of the story, but I didn't know everything. You did Shocking. You're genius again on all this research. It's just phenomenal uh, and great story. So we're going to get into it with, we're going to call this episode Exonerated. And stay tuned at the end of today's episode for some bloody angle announcements. On December 9th, 1982, at midday in an affluent Baton Rouge subdivision known as the Hundred Oaks subdivision in Baton Rouge, a 30-year-old white female had a knock on her door. Now, she heard the knock, y'all. She opened the side door, and there was a black man standing there, and he's holding a briefcase. She recognized this man from an encounter she had a month before and he at that point had stated he was looking for the williams resident she immediately recognized him from that prior encounter now on this particular occasion he sta- he stated he was looking for clothing for the needy so a sixth sense kind of kicked in. She she knew something something was not right. Put yourself in this position. You're home alone. You answer the door. A male is sitting there. Whether he's black or white is irrelevant. Right. A male is sitting there, and he says that he's collecting clothes for the needy. And she just felt something wasn't right, and she kind of started to close that door. He yanks out a flyer, shoves it through the door, and when she grabs it, he takes her by the hand and forces her in the house she takes off running goes to the front door grabs the handle but it's locked stay with me y'all the assailant then grabs her from behind forces her on the ground or on the floor and pins her down with one hand with the other hand he reaches into the briefcase and pulls out a large knife she's struggling he presses it against her neck and orders her to the upstairs portion of the home it was a two-story home he forces her in her son's bedroom and demands she gets totally nude he then strips himself down totally nude forces her on her son's bed and rapes her to complete ejaculation twice two times Two times. He then begins to attempt a third rape of the victim, uh, grabs her, wraps his arms around her, and she notices he has a scar on his shoulder. Obviously, she was being cognizant of, okay, I'm in a situation where I need to find as many identifying marks as possible. Is that important, Woody? I, 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 I don't know if she was actually thinking that at that time. You know, when you're in that fight or flight survival mode and you got a knife to your throat you're being brutally raped not once but two times and about to be a third or at least be attempted a third time but you know when this person's naked on top of you brutally raping you it certainly if you have some like that big scar that's gonna stick in your mind it's gonna stick you're gonna fixate on something and you're not trying to french kiss today you're gonna fixate on something that that's there that sticks out at you and keep in mind this is the third time that he is attempting to rape her so at this time while this is going on the victim's friend arrives at the home to drop off her children she honks the horn to signal to the victim that hey i'm outside your house come get your kids as soon as she pulls in obviously no response So when the victim didn't respond, she leaves the car running. The friend gets out of the car, grabs the kids, and proceeds to the front door and knocks. Which is locked. Which is locked. She gets no answer, so she goes to the side door. Now, that side door is still open. She notices that. She goes inside and makes entry into the home. Still has some kids towed behind her, and she starts calling out, the, the victim's name downstairs, no response. She doesn't hear anything. Now, during this, the perpetrator has his hand over the mouth of the victim. He hears her downstairs. Right. He's pressing his hand and he's saying, don't you say a word. Out of the blue, the, the assailant then takes the knife and stabs the victim in the stomach, pulls her off the bed. And stabs her a second time in you know, the stomach. You know why? Because dead people can't be witnesses. Wrap your mind around that. Now, the friend, of course, she's unaware this is going on. 
She's hollering downstairs. No one's answering. So she goes up the stairs. Where is my friend, right? She has the kids still with her. They're going up the stairs. And at the top of the stairs, she comes face to face with the assailant. At this point, the assailant grabs the friend. He pulls her inside the bedroom, throws her against the wall. And the children, they take off running. They go hide other parts of the house. The friend starts begging for her life. She tells the assailant that her car's running. She literally covers her eyes and tells him, you can escape. I haven't seen you. I can't identify you. Just leave me alone. Just leave me alone. Now, at this point, God intervenes, I believe, and there's a knock on the door, the door that was locked. And that distracts the assailant. It was later discovered that was the mailman, and he was attempting to deliver some certified mail to the owner of the home. The assailant hears that, and realizing he was still nude, he quickly dresses, leaves the home. But before he does that, he takes time to take his shirt and wipe down the bedroom door as he exits. Why would he do that? Absolutely. Obvious reason, trying to cover up his tracks. Now, I believe he was going to kill her, the, the victim anyway, when he got done and would have taken more time and wiped down more things. Now he's in no shit mode and I mean, he's thinking, oh, I at least touched this doorknob. Yeah, he's probably thinking, what is this, Grand Central Station right, in here? Right. I, I'm trying to rape somebody. A friend comes right. over, and then now the mailman's here. Right. And so he went from basically, and I, I fully believe he probably would have killed that oh, other he was, female. He was going to kill them. And the kids. Right, right. No doubt about that. And the funny thing, what you said about God intervening is, you know, the mailman normally just puts the mail in the slot, but she just happened to have certified mail that she had to sign for that day to get the letter, and that's why he knocked on the door. Yeah. Crazy. So off he goes. He goes out the door. The friend actually takes over, and, and, and she's her friend bleeding to death. She's been stabbed twice. She's nude, and she gets her medical attention as fast as she can. Literally drives her to the hospital. First thing they're going to do is is try to save the victim's life. She's been stabbed twice, so she has to go into surgery. All right. Um, if she doesn't live, they may have tried to ask a question or two. Who knows what state she was in? But generally, the doctors will shove you out of the way if you're a detective and like, hey, we have, we got to try to save her life. Now, sometimes you can get a dying declaration. Didn't happen in this point uh, in this case, but then. While she's in surgery, naturally they're going to interview the friend who came in, try to get details of of what happened. She's going to tell the story, what she told the assailant, the whole nine yards, and they'll start to work the case. All right. So one of the things they'll do, uh, and she, the victim did live, y'all. Then one of the things they do during that process when they're treating her, because uh, they know it's a rape from the friend. And, of course, she's nude also and been stabbed. So they do what they call a sexual assault kit um, or a rape kit, more commonly known as a rape kit, where they collect any type of DNA evidence or pubic hairs or, I mean, it's a it's a real vagina, uh, vaginal swabs. And, and, and now this is back in the, in the 80s, y'all. 1982. So this, this is before DNA was even born. And I remember when it first came out, like, was used successfully, I think it was like 91 or 90 when the first one came out. O.J. Simpson case was really the first time they really dove into DNA. Yeah, yeah. And, and, but they had, they had been successful on a small scale in some other cases where it was tried, but nobody knew how phenomenal DNA was. Uh, uh, if it's in a case like this where you have a stranger assailant that does it right but so the they would have collected all anything they could from her and then and let me let me say this point to woody's point science back then had not caught up with what science is today by any means as a matter of fact one of the only ways you could could pin somebody to a crime was through semen samples, serology, blood, blood exactly. samples, semen samples, and here was the problem with that though: they can only narrow it down. Right, it right. wasn't like DNA; right. they couldn't they, say they, there's only one person right. that has this they type say of it's semen, an AB secreter, or whatever it may be. Uh, but yes. there was nothing 
definitive. It wasn't like a fingerprint. So what would they have to go off of back then? They're going to work the case. And they would have got the physical description from the friend. And when the victim's able, they would get her to tell the story. And she does, and including about the scar that she saw and things like that. And they also had a composite drawing. Right, right. So, yeah, the, um, I forget the name of the system they used to use. It was a kit. that the um, Identity kit. Identity kit. That's what it was. And so they had, like, this kit, y'all, is, you can go look it up. I've seen them before. They had all these different shaped noses, different size faces and things. And they would, they would say, is this one right? No. Is this one better? Yes, that's better, but that's not right. And they keep going to, to, to they get a composite um, drawing, if you will, of the assailant. And what do you tell them, tell them about your, I mean, how good are these artists at doing this? You know, it's, how it's, reliable it's crazy is that? that some, some, I mean, I actually believe it or not, it's, it's pretty phenomenal what they yeah. do. Uh, 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 but although it's not always accurate now, I've had cases where we had a, uh, um, assistant chief got stabbed in the middle of the night and he did it on his way into surgery and the, the, the sketch was so good when it came back and they ran it on the news. The the bad guy got home that night and his mama said, "Hey, did you stab that chief?" And she, he said, "No, mama." He said, "Why?" Because that guy on the composite they showed looks just like you, but that's not always the case. Uh, uh, but in this one, she was they were able to come up with the composite sketch, if you will, and from that. They were able to, you know, they worked the investigation, people in the neighborhood, different things like that. Um, they would, you would look at anybody convicted of sex crimes or released recently, et cetera. Then you eventually, if you're lucky enough, you would develop a suspect through your investigation. And then that, then you get a photo lineup or what we commonly refer to as a six pack. And the six pack is photographs of six individuals, like say if it's a white male, black male, whatever, they'll have people that have the same characteristics and they put them in a six pack and they'll show it to the victim and say, we don't want to make you want you to make any guesses. Only tell us if you're a thousand percent sure this is how it's supposed to happen. If you're a thousand percent sure, can you identify anyone in this deal? Right. And so that's what they did. They did. And that this is a huge part of this case as we go along. So remember that they started showing photo lineups. Now they showed these six packs. Obviously it's, you know, if you have a six pack sitting there and it's a black male, you're not going to have three white males, three black males, anything like that. So they, they show these six packs. It's all black males, maybe supposedly resembling the intruder. So they show the six packs the day she gets out of surgery. And she basically says, I don't see anybody that looks like that. The next day, the investigating officers go back and they say, okay, you've rested a little bit. You've had a little, yeah, all those things you, you know, maybe you're, you've had time to sleep on it. We're going to show you another six pack and we're going to let you look at it and see if you recognize any of these guys. And y'all who knows, where they were getting their the possible assailant to put in the six pack, right? And but they did it, and then they did it, and then they did it, and they did it. <laughs> I mean, they kept going back to her over and over again. As a matter of fact, uh, over a hundred pictures were shown to her before she was able to make a positive identification, yeah. or what she called a positive identification. But even before that, they, you know, she. She was on the mend. She got out of the hospital, and they started producing physical lineups. And what do you kind of tell us about physical lineups? The victim of a trauma like this, or multiple traumas of rapes, and then the, the attempted murder and everything else, even though they can remember the scar that's what sticks out in the head on, on the shoulder or the arm, um, you're not always going to get height and weight and all that. You know, right? You may get the darkness of the skin or the hair right or something. But and to me, an eyewitness is the worst witness that you can have uh, it, and when they're going through something like this. Uh, but now that they didn't only have hers. They had the her friend who was in the house also said, said you know, he was, I think he was approximately so tall. He, he might have weighed so much. He might have had this feature or whatever. So they're putting it all together. The friend of the victim also started viewing physical lineups because she came face to face with him as well. She's a witness. At one of the physical lineups, she sees 
two gentlemen she thinks could be it. Could she be. basically says there's two guys here, and, it, and both of them kind of look like it could be it. The police tell her, well, you got to pick one. So she does. Which you should never do. Which yeah. you should, there you go. It, I, mean, I mean, honestly, if she did that, they could have gone back and got more six-packs uh, with these two guys and different ones and came back and showed it, even though – to me, at that time, that that's kind of taints it, right? Either you can pick them out or you can't. You got to be able to get on the stand and say, beyond a reasonable doubt, that's the person that I saw. So, Woody, let me ask you, since you were the premier detective, hmm. I'm going to ask you, um, in this situation, if you have someone and they're looking at a physical lineup and they do say to you, ah, could be him or it could be him. Yeah, what do you, you say? Know, I tell him ahead of time. I said, I don't want you to guess. If you have a guess in your mind, don't even tell me what your guess is because it's. It, I don't want it to be tainted, right? I say either you can pick them out or you can't. And, I, and you know what? I'd also say, and, and we do this sometimes, I would put I would put ones in there that didn't have anything, I didn't think had anything to do with the case because that gives your six-packs validity if, if this goes to trial. Say, hey, look, I showed ones without – the suspect even in it. And so I tell them, don't, don't guess. I don't want it. If you got a guess, hold on to it. Don't tell me. Cause you know what? They say, mm, I think it could be this one or that one. You're screwed from a detective standpoint. Eventually after viewing multiple physical lineups, as well as, as the victim's friend who we're not going to name after that, after viewing over, Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Get the right car at Riker. It's the Riker Black Friday Savings Event. Get a $500 gas card with the purchase of any new vehicle. Only at RikerKia.com. Get the right car. Save big on brunch for mom. All in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound. All with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. We're dealing. I don't know, 26 packs. It's a lot. She fingers someone she says was the uh, perpetrator, which was... Archie Williams. Before that, let's go back real quick. The uh, she said, "I, you know what? Show me some profiles. I think maybe I can't pick them out like this. Maybe I can do it if you show me some profiles." And they even did that profile six packs. I mean, that's crazy. They were looking through these six packs, and she said it could be who eventually was Archie Williams. It could be this guy, but his hair was different. Let me tell you what's crazy about that, y'all. Listen to this shit. Every one of the six packs they showed, at least I believe it, everyone, at least the majority of the six packs they showed over and over and over again, there was one person that was in every one of the six packs. The other five people, the other five photographs were in were changed every time. One person that was consistently shown in each six pack was Archie Archie Williams. So keep that in your back pocket. Yeah. Now they've got their man. So they go to get Archie Williams. So they go to his house or wherever they found him. And they say, Hey, Archie, where were you on this date and this time? And he said, I was sleeping. I was at home. You got anybody that can prove that? He said, yeah, my mama was there. So yeah. they go talk to his mama. Now, Archie Williams was 22 years old at this time. Yeah. I think it was like 1130 in the morning or something. 1130 like in the morning. Um, so they go talk to the mother and she says the same thing. He was at home at 1130 in the morning. He was sleeping. I was here. Uh, they say, well, he was identified. They basically, they don't believe. Uh, so they arrest Archie Williams 
And he goes to trial. Even though there was another witness that said that Archie Williams was home also. His sister. No, it was what was it? It was Sterling. Albert Sterling. Albert Sterling. Uh, uh, said no. Hey, he was here. Yeah. Now, so they've got several people right. uh, vouching for a story. Now, as a police officer, I'm going to ask Woody again. You have to consider who these people are absolutely, in some circumstances. And, all the time. And family yeah. is probably more apt to I lie had, for I had, you. I had a daddy that was a preacher lied and said his son was in Centerville, Mississippi when he was here in the LP doing all the armed robberies, right? I mean, he lied. He got on a stand and lied. And, and, and you know, that was proven later on. But so, you you know, but you have to take that into context, but – to me, it's kind of the fruit of the poisonous tree. And when you show all these photo lineups and Archie is the only one that's in every one of them, and you're even trying to change it to where it's a picture. So maybe the hair is different. Well, they find another picture of Archie with his hair different. They show in the photo lineup and Archie's still in there. And you see it repetitively over and over and over and over again. Then the detectives, to me at this point, have tunnel vision, and they're like, we got our guy. We don't believe the mama and the Sterling. Um, hook him and book him. All right, so y'all, he's arrested, and he goes to trial. I think the trial took two days. Yeah. And in two days, y'all, and in the they found him guilty, Archie Williams, guilty of aggravated rape, which automatically there's no leeway in Simpson on that one, y'all. If you get convicted of aggravated rape in the state of Louisiana, you get life in prison with no possibility of parole. And life in Louisiana means life means you're going to die in prison. They also can, uh, convicted him of attempted first-degree murder. Now, why is it first-degree murder? It's because he stabbed her two times during the commission of the aggravated rape. So that's an aggravating circumstance. The third count they convicted him on, well, let me back up. Yeah. For that attempted first degree murder, they could have gave him a lot more, but they gave him 50 years. That's on top of his life sentence. And the third count they convicted him on was aggravated burglary. Let me explain that to you. Aggravated burglary in the state of Louisiana doesn't mean that, that allegedly Archie Williams stole anything when he was in the house. If you break into anyone's home in or their business in, in the state of Louisiana and you commit a felony once you're inside, then you get charged with aggravated burglary. Doesn't mean you stole anything. It's just another good charge that they dump on top, and I used to put it on people all the time. But they sentenced him to 30 years on that charge also. So he's got life without the possibility of paroles plus 80 years. Convicted. Convicted. Gone. Yeah, so when he dies in, in Angola, he, he could come back and— Jesus could raise him from the dead, and he could live for another 80 years, and he still ain't getting out. He still ain't getting out. They they threw the book at him. Now, 1983, y'all. Let me tell y'all, when I started researching this, I got really fired up because there are so many issues with this case. This case is one where this poor man lost the better part of his life not only were they wrong, it became a situation where they were so desperate to prove that they were right and they had the evidence and all this sort of thing that they let another man sit in jail for 36 years on something that was, quite frankly, bullshit. So I'm going to go through the appeals process. So after you get convicted of a crime, you have a right to appeal. When you get a sentence like Mr. Unless, Williams. Unless you take a plea bargain. Unless you take a plea bargain. Yes, thank you. Unless you take a plea bargain. And when you have a case like Mr. Williams, who did not take a plea bargain, that's why he got the book thrown right, at him. Right. Um, you got nothing to lose by appealing. Right. <laughs> I mean, and, and you got all the time in the world to appeal. Right? That's right. So he puts together an appeal. I'm going to go over with y'all some of the ways in which his defense appealed this. And when you put together an appeal, you basically list out your arguments, they call them. You might have 20 different arguments in that case where you feel like the prosecution, maybe they did something underhanded, or maybe this evidence wasn't considered correctly, or maybe a juror was bad. It could be anything. It could be anything. Your defense attorney was incompetent, whatever. Right. So his defense put together these arguments. I'm going to go over these with you now. The 
friend of the victim, the one that came in with the kids. So at at trial, she testified she wasn't absolutely certain about her identification when reviewing the physical lineups. She basically told him, when I went into the lineup, there were six men, all about the same height, all about the same body build, all approximately with the same hairdo, and all the same age. So I was left with the impression of kind of like any, mini, money mo. All of them look like the assailant is what she's basically saying. Yeah, let me say this real quick and interrupt you, Jim, because I did not cover this earlier when, when I was talking about photo lineups. The physical lineups, y'all, is, is like you see in the movies where they put them behind the glass, they march six people in, stand them up, and have them stand there, and the witness or the victim is behind the glass, and they say, uh, I want to look at number one. Now, I have number one, step forward. You know, can we turn around, whatever. That's what he's talking about, physical lineup. Yeah, so she basically said they all looked like the assailant, and so I basically played any, meeny, miny, mo, and it landed on Archie Williams, and she added she was only about 70% sure. Yeah. Now, this is under testimony. Yeah, that's, that's, that's a problem, that's right? What do you ever Okay, so beyond a reasonable doubt, that's not beyond a reasonable doubt. Any good detective, I would imagine Woody would tell somebody if you're not a hundred percent, it's standard standard. Right. And she said in the trial under oath, hand on the Bible, I was only 70% sure. Right. That's a problem. When you appeal a case, it, would it be a judge that looks that over? It goes to the court of appeals. Yeah. Okay. They look it over and they say if there's any merit, and they'll 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 answer it. those arguments. They'll answer it. They'll say there's no merit found, uh, or or they'll say you know what, yeah, this is a problem. They'll send it back down to the the, the lower trial court to to correct it if they can. And their response back because they response they respond back to these arguments one by one. Their response back was, well, she only looked at it for ten or fifteen minutes. So she didn't have a whole lot of time to kind of size him up before she covered her eyes and everything. And she admitted that she covered her eyes. So we're, we don't expect her to be able to pick him out a hundred percent. Right. To me looking in as a, as someone reading this, I'm thinking, well, then why is her opinion being considered okay. at all? Let me tell you real quick why, because on, when they have this different, many points on appeal is what they call them. The, uh, or challenges on appeal, they'll they'll take they they say hey if we can take her testimony and just if the jury had never heard it would they still have convicted Archie Williams? They talked about the scar that he had. The victim described a scar on the shoulder of the assailant, as we told you. Now initially, she said it was on his right clavicle, but in the trial, she said it was on his right upper arm now the defendant did have a scar on his upper right arm but he didn't have any scar on his clavicle which is what she originally said right. so her her testimony changed from yeah. when she talked to the and, detectives and, initially and, and, but a lot of times testimony i mean they will change they'll remember things differently but i've never had someone be so specific as to say the clavicle and then move it to lower arm you know what i mean if I she, had said, if she had said upper chest or uh, upper arm or whatever, but you say clavicle, but again, it's not her fault. Uh, if, if they came back and they say, Archie Williams has got one on his upper arm, you could have been mistaken. Right. I'm saying, I'm not saying that I have no direct knowledge. The detectives did that, but they're, if they're trying to make it all fit in their case, then, then she could change her memory. Right. And, and look, uh, the court of appeals agreed with you because basically what they said was, we don't really find a whole lot of significance in the victim's inability to pinpoint the precise right. location. The fact that there was a scar in the general area to right. them was enough. That was their answer to that. Now, uh, there was a gentleman that testified during the original trial by the name of Jerry Miller. He was a serologist. Uh, what he what is a serologist? Serologist goes back down to the blood and the semen, y'all. Back then, the DNA was not in play, and then they could break it down to, you know, he's a, this type of secretor or had this type of blood type. Whatever evidence they had, serologists could come in and testify to their opinion. Now, and when an expert comes in and testifies, the jury is only to consider it as their professional opinion, not fact. Right. And as Woody discussed earlier, this was 1982. 
DNA was non-existent. There was no blood DNA back then that we had. We were able to narrow it down to one particular person. What they used was semen samples, and they would get a semen sample from Archie Williams and the semen that was present inside the vagina of the victim. In the right kit, yeah. Here's the issue. Here's the issue. Back then, you couldn't narrow it down to one person. It could be narrowed down generally. They could just say that you couldn't be excluded. 100%. That's huge. That was something that really in the original trial was considered heavy evidence against Archie Williams just because he couldn't be excluded. But there might be 10 million guys that couldn't be excluded. He's just one of the 10 million. So moving on from that, there was also some fingerprints found at the scene uh, that were a bloody fingerprint. When you find pit fingerprints on the scene, is it necessary to get everybody's fingerprints that could possibly? Yep, you should because it, you know you don't know if it's EMS came in or the friend had uh, touched her blood and got it on you know wherever it was. So yes, you want to exclude uh, anybody that you possibly can, and, and especially being bloody fingerprints. Yeah, and so they did that. They went. They got the. You know, the kids' fingerprints, everybody's fingerprints, and they match them against this fingerprint they found. They got Archie Williams' fingerprints, match them against Archie Williams didn't match. Nobody in the family's matched. They had two workers that were working at that house during that time period, and neither one of theirs matched. They had an unidentified fingerprint. They didn't know who it belonged to. The state contended that that could have been anybody. Uh, The defense for Archie Williams said, well, why would it have been bloody? Right. That's excellent point. Excellent point, and uh, and credit to his defense for bringing that up, and that that struck a chord with me. the The defense's point was the burden is always, always with the state to prove the crime, not the defense. The defense doesn't have to prove anything. The state has to prove it beyond a reasonable doubt. Now, now. Um, I'll throw this in there when, and this happened in Courtney Coco's trial, when the defense gets up and, and uh, examines the state's witnesses, basically they are testifying for the defendant yeah. just by even asking the questions, even though they're just trying to poke holes in a reasonable doubt, but technically that's what they're doing. Right. Right. And so, it, you know, all things being correct, uh, technically that, you know, all of the onus is on the prosecution to prosecute that case. You're supposed to be innocent until proven guilty. Yeah. Um, in this case, the defense's point is, and if you're following along with what we're saying here so far, there's, I haven't heard one shred of evidence that Archie Williams did anything. Yeah. So, but I'm, a, I'm not playing devil's advocate, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna say it because uh, it's on my mind. The thing is now this is a, another trial court. This is an appeals court, y'all, that's reading all this information. Now, I understand uh, the scar may be her not, you know, her wavering where the scar may be. Um, you know, these, each one of these different appeals, and they're thinking, oh, well, this wouldn't have changed the case overall. But, hell, you put them all together, the 70% identification, well, that should, if you take, all these different things, the the 70% identification, the uh, the bloody fingerprint, the scar being changed, and all these things. If the jury hadn't heard all these things, Archie Williams finally got convicted. There was an informant that came forward, and the informant told police before Archie was arrested, hey, I can identify the assailant. So they showed him photographs. They did the little six-pack stuff, and – uh, several days later, he comes back to them and he says, yeah, that's Archie Williams. I know who the, uh, looks just like him. Um, there was an issue there. The informant was a convicted criminal, uh, not saying that if you're a convicted criminal that you necessarily are lying, but he wasn't the most reliable of witness. So the defense then says, oh, there's a guy that fingered Archie Williams. What's his name? And the prosecution says, we're not telling you. They don't have to do that. He's considered a confidential informant. That's crazy. So what's the issue with that? Well, me as an outside layman, I'm thinking, 
how do I know that this guy didn't have a grudge against me? If I know who it is, maybe I can say, oh, well. How do you not know that the detectives are so hardcore on trying to build this case that they wouldn't got one of their CIs and said, hey, I need you to pick this guy out, right? Because let me say, you know what? If the detectives were this bad in this case, I, it doesn't mean, y'all, that they were just had the world against Archie Williams. It just means as a detective, sometimes you get that tunnel vision. You get so focused. You're like, mm, let me get this one more piece, one more piece, one more piece. Try to build this brick house that Archie Williams is guilty. Of. It doesn't necessarily mean these detectives were bad people that, or they woke up one morning and decided, Hey, we're going to frame Archie Williams. It just means they got tunnel vision. As we move along in this case, we start seeing more and more issues in my opinion. Uh, that being one of them. So the defense makes yet another argument in this appeal, and they say uh, the trial court made a big mistake in refusing to compel production of tape statements of the victim and eyewitness. So they had tapes, and back then it was real tapes. Right, 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 right. Woody, yeah, back yeah, in your day? Was, uh, it was, uh, um, if you were lucky. Muffled was microphones yeah, and all. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Cassette. And for whatever reason, they weren't given those tapes. They were just played in court. To everybody's surprise, that's a discovery issue. Right, right Brady. That is, um, so the prosecution has to give over everything to the defense. They don't have to tell them what they're going to use, but they have to give over everything. And it's a Brady law. And, and if you don't, that's bad shit, right? And, yes. uh, I mean, it's discovery. It's all that should have been produced over in discovery. That alone should have had whole, whole, if it was played in the trial, which was that the whole case should have been dismissed. Right. So that was the argument of the defense. And you might say, well, what, what, you know, if, if they played it in court, it is what it is. Well, the problem with that is if any description was given by the witness on that tape, the defense had no time to prepare to rebuttal that. So when you hear it live in court, you can't say, wait a minute, your honor, this, you know, she said he was five twelve and he's five (laughs) eleven or whatever. Uh, yes, I know. Five twelve is six feet. Uh, so, <laughs> I wasn't even thinking about that. so, um, so the point of the matter is, you don't have enough time to prepare an adequate defense to that particular key piece of evidence, which is why discovery is so important and why you are bound by law to turn that over before it's actually handled in court. The only time, as a matter of fact, that you can, in a court case, just produce a piece of evidence and stick it up there is if it's in rebuttal to somebody who's already testified. So if you've got to, if an, if a, uh, if a witness gets on the stand and just flat out lies, you can then go up there and prove that he's lying without conferring with the defense. Or, or, let me give you another example ahead of time. And, and again, I'm going to throw back to Courtney Coco's trial. Uh, the, they had a witness that got up and testified that Burns had said that he killed her, choked her to death, and then wrapped her in plastic. Now, that in the trial, that was the first time that ever came out. It was always had been the bed comforter. The next morning, the special prosecutor put on the grandmother who went over to clean the house out after the murder, and she noticed that the plastic shower curtain was missing, right? Right. So that's a... a an example of the only way you can get shit in that unless both sides have it ahead of time is if somebody gets up there and says something that's out of the box, but having recorded tapes, that's bullshit. Yeah. A hundred percent. So on they go to another argument. They say another problem was, uh, they objected to the court overruling the objection of the state's exercise of preemptory challenges. Right. When you have, Voidir, jury selection. Again, having sat 11 days in a trial recently, um, the Voidir, when when you go through the jury selection process, the they'll bring in one panel at a time. In, in Courtney's case, it was 20 at a time. And each side, the um, the prosecution gets to introduce themselves and go over, you know, the general thing while we're there, blah, blah, blah. Then they get to ask questions, you know, where are you from? Are you married? Do you have kids? What do you work? Blah, blah, blah. Have you heard anything about this case, et cetera, et cetera. Then the defense gets to do the same thing. The judge is listening to all this. And at the end of the jury panel, they send the jury out. And then the judge gets to strike so many for calls. Like if the person in Courtney's case, they were like, no, I listened to real life real crime. And I know he did it. And you're never going to change my mind. Right. With judge, dismiss them for calls. But the defense 
and the prosecution gets X amount of peremptory, peremptory strikes. Okay. They can get rid of a juror just because they don't like the way they look or they, or something they said or whatever. Right. So the, in this case, the defense was arguing that there was only three blacks on the entire jury. So, um, and, and I'm not going to turn this into a racial thing. I'm just going to tell you their side. So their side was he's supposed to be judged by a jury of his peers. And with only three blacks out of nine jurors, there's an overwhelming count of white jurors. And we don't feel like he could have got a fair defense that way. Their argument essentially was white people will automatically assume guilt when it's a black assailant. Absolutely correct. And I just saw this again recently that uh, where the defense used all, they used 10 strikes in a row to dismiss white jurors. And the prosecution was like, Hey, Hey, hold on. Told the judge that's their 10th white juror in a row. I'm now challenging. They need to show, tell this court why they sent the jury out. Cause they need to tell this court why they dis- dismissed 10 white people in a row. And, and, and only one of blacks in the jury. So it, went, it goes both ways. All right. So there's yet another argument. The defense makes the argument concerning the photo lineups, which we've kind of already talked about with you. But basically, they say between December 15th, 1982 and January 4th, the victim was shown approximately 18 photographic lineups. That's, just, that's absurd. These lineups confirmed to a usual photo display arrangement, cut out, bust black and white photos of the suspects in a manila folder. Right, a manila folder with, with they, they cut out the, the, the page they put over the photographs. It's actually the little yellow lines covering the white in between each one. Right. And they basically showed 18 six packs. Right. <laughs> and so the defense is like, not only is it a problem that it took her 18 six-packs six to identify Archie Williams, but Archie Williams is the only black male that was included in every single six-pack. I agree, but here's the deal. It's not even at the end of the day, technically. Now, here's where they fucked up. The, the, they could show 120 if they're still working the case and they don't have any suspects. Right. The problem was they had Archie Williams as a suspect from the fucking beginning and they put him in every photo lineup. He's the only person that wasn't changed in all 18 lineups. They I mean, you can't do that. As sooner or later, the person is going to recognize, oh, my God, it's the same male. They show me over and over again. Right. And you may ask yourself like I did. Why? Why? What was it about Archie Williams that they included him in every lineup? Well, we go back to what what I told you earlier. They had the convicted criminal say that Archie did it, yep. and they were dialed in to Archie at that time. Convicted criminal that nobody knows the name of. Nobody knows the That's name bullshit. of. And evidently, they didn't want to believe his family. Right. He could have had a huge, and apparently had a huge axe to grind with Archie hey, Williams. Don't forget the witness uh, was 70% sure. Yeah. Right. <laughs> 70, that's right. And so, y'all, when Jim is saying the defense, it's not, it's an almost never the, the people that do these appeals process, it's almost never. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. From 3 to 6 p.m. Monday through Friday, Buffalo Wild Wings Happy Hour has beer, cocktails, and bar food for 3 to 6 bucks. It's the perfect way to offset a long day. Text that hilarious joke about your boss to your boss. What? No, no. Try a $4 Coors Light Tall. Set your morning alarm for 6 p.m. That calls for $5 strawberry margaritas. So if you ask your phone why you're still single and... Ha, ha, ha. Seriously? Head to Buffalo Wild Wings Happy Hour from 3 to 6. At participating locations, taxes and fees apply. Dine-in only. Drink responsibly. Offers vary by location. Void where prohibited. The same trial attorney. 
Okay. And, and I can assure you it wasn't in this case. Okay. Now this is going to blow your mind as we get into this next argument that they made. It blew mine. And that was with respect to the jurors. And there were a few jurors in particular that the defense singled out in this appeal. And that was Nancy Talbert, Janet Lupo and Ronnie Pierce. And basically those prospective jurors expressed some sort of reservation about their ability to fairly consider the defendant's right not to testify. Oh, that's, that's always a big one under the fifth amendment. And, and it blew my mind because me as a prospective juror, I never would have said this, uh, but these people did and they were honest and shout out to them for being honest. And we'll use Miss Talbot's statement, Talbot, statement and that was they basically ask her you know when you're a prospective juror they're going to ask you questions do you think you can fairly uh uh decide this case and it uh, you know they may say oh well i know one of the cops in this case okay well it even though you're going to give that cops or i know one of the witnesses in this case well would you give that witness's testimony more weight than anybody else's and both sides get to ask that and they'll you know Hopefully they'll say no, but sometimes they say, yeah. Right. And so the defense counsel stood up and they asked Miss Talbot when it was their turn. They said, okay, so if you're a juror on this trial and the defendant doesn't testify, are you going to hold that against him? Mm -hmm. And Miss Talbot stated that she would have to hear both sides or she would hold it against the defendant. Now, at the point uh that she said that the trial judge intervenes and he says well hold up you know he has a constitutional right not to testify with considering that constitutional right would you are you sure that you couldn't uh have a free judgment and not not automatically assume he was guilty and she says well if he has a constitutional right i guess you know i would consider that but she was very hesitant Um, the, at that point, the defense wanted to dismiss her, but they weren't allowed. The judge should have dismissed them on calls. That's what y'all when you know, I told you earlier, the judge, can strike anybody they want. And I've seen this time and time again, the same exact thing. There's a lot of people that when they're asked that question, they're like, shit, no, I want to hear from the defendant. If I they actually heard, heard somebody say this, say, look, if I'm my life's on, uh, I'm on trial for my life then you better believe I'm going to get up there and testify. And they're like, but you don't have to. It's your right not to testify, and you can't hold it against the client. I don't don't give a shit. I want to hear from them. Judge should have struck them on calls, and therefore the defense and the prosecution don't have to waste a strike on them. Now, Janet Lupo, she gets up, and the defense asks her the same thing, and she states she would hold it against the defendant if he didn't testify and prove himself innocent. Said almost the identical thing that Nancy Talbert did. So the prosecutor gets up, and he says, he's, he explains to her the presumption of innocence. He says, you know, uh, that, that the uh, person up for trial basically has a privilege of against self-incrimination and that's why he wouldn't be testifying and miss lupo basically states that she would try her best to apply the law and would not convict the defendant because he did not take the stand but even that initial answer should have been enough right Woody? Struck, the judge should have struck him yeah on calls y'all so it, that's you don't it, at the end of the day if and he did get found guilty. And and you know this is going to an appeals process. If you're a fair and good judge, you should say, mm, striking them on calls. And you don't even have to explain it. You just say, I'm striking them because they, they were iffy about if they could do it or not. Right? Strike them. You got plenty more jurors, prospective jurors you can interview. You get somebody that doesn't say that. This dude's on trial for his life. I mean, I believe in giving everybody a fair trial, especially the motherfuckers I put in Angola, right? I want, I, I don't want these appeals process to come back and bite me in the ass. Right. And so now you have two jurors, Woody right. Overton, right. that have said that, that were allowed to be jurors in the trial. That is crazy. Ronnie Pierce, another prospective juror, he states he could not promise he would be totally fair if the defendant did not testify in his own behalf. And the prosecution got up, explained the same thing to him. And uh, he basically says, okay, well, uh, I'll consider that. Just shouldn't have happened, y'all. I see this in every single trial I've been a part of. People say the same exact thing. And then you know what? The judge strikes them for cause just so it doesn't come up on appeal. 
they didn't do it in this case. So you may wonder, well, you know, that right there, that's it. There, there's the smoking gun, right? What excuse could the appeals court have for allowing these jurors to still testify? Well, they came back and they answered that question, as they do okay. with these so appeals. Jurors to, to still sit on the jury. Yes. Right. They came back, they answered that question, and they said it's not uh, a mistake for the trial court not to dismiss a juror who expresses some reservation about accepting the law when, after given additional information by the court, they change their mind. They always give the additional information. You know why the prosecution jumps up and says that? Because they want them to say, oh, well, I guess I could be fair. Then you know why? Because the prosecution is hoping I can get them on the jury because if he doesn't testify, which he's not going to, which he doesn't testify, I'm going to give me a guilty verdict. Right, so y'all look. But when I say the judge um, can strike them calls, doesn't mean they have to. But if they wanted to avoid this bullshit on appeal, they should have struck them. Right, and so basically, after viewing the entire jury selection uh, process of that trial, the appeals court came back and said that they felt like all of those jurors were successfully rehabilitated mm-hmm. in their and educated on the law, and they could then be fair about it. Well, that's, that's their decision. That is their decision to make. Now, um, the defense didn't stop there, though, with the jurors. They had a, a major problem with one particular juror, and that was a guy by the name of Edward Gaines. Now, Edward Gaines was, in their statement, biased due to his employment in the criminal division of the East Baton Rouge Parish Clerk of Courts Office. So he was a East Baton Rouge Parish Clerk of Court investigator. Yeah, that's – I would have had a problem with that. <laughs> that's bad. The judge okay. should have had a problem with that. That was a major faux pas, yeah. to say the least. Um, yeah, he's way too close to the criminal process uh, – than to be on that case. Listen, I still get jury summons, okay? But all I got to do is call in and say, hey, I spent my life and still doing defense work and, and criminal work. You know, they, they dismissed me. You, you never, I can't ever remember it in any trial, anybody that had any part of the criminal justice system, especially a detective or a cop being on, or an investigator being on a jury. Holy shit. Argument number. 16 that they made was actually uh, regarding the defendant's mother, Dolores Williams. So she gave testimony, as you remember us telling you, that he had an alibi. He was sleeping um, on cross-examination and in an attempt to impeach her credibility, which is important. Anytime you have a witness vouching for a defendant, you want to the credibility is the most important thing. I want to make it. I want to prove this person's lying. So the prosecution gets up there and they asked her about a conviction she had in 1970 for accessory after the fact to murder. Mm. So uh, she admits in court that she uh, was convicted of that, but the defense argued that should have never came up. Well, I probably would have brought that up if I was a prosecutor. You're going to bring it up. They were doing their job, but hell that's bad. I mean, to me, if if I, you know y'all can consider this, people that are sitting on that jury are normal people, right? Who don't commit crimes and not been most of them have not been involved in crimes. So matter of fact, that's one of the things that in Wadir they ask anybody here ever been a victim of crime? Close family member been a victim of crime? Guess what? They don't want you on the jury. But the to get that in, mm, prosecution just did their job on it. But but I guess the defense rolled the dice and said. She's our witness. That's she's, right. She's our alibi. But you, yeah, if I was on a jury and, and, and you told me you've been convicted of that, I wouldn't have believed anything you said. So there was a point during the original trial where they called for a mistrial. And the reason was in relation to the fingerprints. Uh, as we told you earlier, they had an unidentified fingerprint that didn't relate to anybody there. And uh, they discovered that the unidentified fingerprint did not match the workers, the family or anybody. Hence it was unidentified. And they also found out that the police had actually hypnotized a woman that lived in the hundred Oaks subdivision and under hypnosis, uh, 
this victim stated she saw a black man doing yard work on the day of the rape. Now, they pulled the sergeant who hypnotized, or he didn't hypnotize her, but the sergeant who was investigating the case who had her hypnotized, and he testified that the woman remembered seeing a black man working in a yard near the victim's home. He stated that she described the man as wearing a tan leather coat and blue jeans. Sergeant Newman also testified he saw and talk with this man the day of the offense and concluded he did not fit the assailant's description as he was much older and taller. The trial court denied the motion for a new trial. So basically the point of the defense is there was another black man in that subdivision during that time. We didn't know anything about this. And where is this guy? Why didn't they fingerprint him? Oh, that's a great question, Woody Everton. You should be a detective. I should be. (laughs) So we just laid out for you a ton of issues with this trial, and we're going to have to probably cut this one short. Or not cut it short. We're going to have to piece it into another part because we're already getting close to an hour. So every actually we're over an hour, but the thing is, y'all, everything that was told – this story is so important. It's important for Archie Williams. It's important for uh, it's important for our justice system. So we, we're not going to rush anything. I want you and Jim wants you to hear each one of these uh, appeals, the the charges that were where they're saying the trial court aired. You one by one. If it was just one that stood by itself, I wouldn't give it much weight. But holy shit, that's a lot, bro. Yeah. And and but now, when we come back, when the next episode, we're going to tell you, we're going to tell you about Archie Williams, and we're going to tell you about life after this conviction. We're going to tell you about everything, and it is one of the most beautiful stories that I've ever heard. Hundred percent. It and really spoke the to way me. We would get into it uh, about all. Every, all the factors about wrongful convictions and you know the lawsuits of, from for the ones that are exonerated and everything else. It's so much more to come, so you got to listen to it. But, but we always promised you everything we tell you would be different, and this story is di- different than any ones we've ever covered. I agree. Um, we got some little announcements to tell. Right. I'll lay it out. Got some stuff coming up. What are you ever doing? <laughs> January 14th, 2023, Southeastern Louisiana University. Southeastern Livingston Campus. Campus. Uh, Miss Crystal Hardison has been instrumental. Love. And, and she is a love. And instrumental in us getting to do our first ever Bloody Angola Live. It's going to be off the chain as the uh, look that's a great pun for a prison podcast Woody Everton off the chain you're right <laughs> off the chain we're really excited about doing this live uh we did a little special drop so we won't get too deep into what's going to be happening right. but hey look comfortable seating theater seating it's going right. to be an intimate event only 150 people by the time you're hearing this it's, it's probably, probably sold, sold out, out. but if it's not if there's two tickets left run and get them right. uh adults only 18 and above yeah adults only show as you know we talk about some pretty uh you know some people might consider it disturbing content right. and so uh adults only uh event we're gonna have some swag there you can be able to buy some pictures and we'll, get, we'll sign them for we'll, you or yeah. we'll sign your you know we, your ball cap whatever you want whatever you want we'll take the time we're gonna take personal time after the live show with each and every person that came to see us and it's gonna be love there'll be alcoholic beverages there'll be food there'll be different things for sale but it's a it's a private evening with Jim Chapman and I in bloody Angola and the story is going to be fire and, and you know what I'm excited about more than anything else with this Woody on Facebook, we interact with these people all the time, and I'm finally going to get to meet some of these people exactly. that we, you know, That's I consider right. all of y'all family. Woody considers all of y'all family. You finally get to put the name with the face. Yes. Right? And and that's why I, every time I take a photograph of somebody, I'm like, what's your name? Where are you from? Because it, it'll hit me. Like, oh, so I see you on there all the time, right? And, you know, so it'll be our chance to get the personal connection back with y'all. Very excited about that. So we look forward to that. Just look forward. Uh, it, maybe there's some tickets left. Maybe not. I don't know. But 
Love it. Going to see all of y'all there, and uh, it's going to be a great time. And you can find the tickets at? You can get them at southeastern.edu or on any of the social media channels. Uh, you'll see us promoting this thing throughout. The links are in all of that. And in the description of this episode, the easiest way to find it. Right. Just scroll down to the description. You can click, click on that on link. It. It'll bring you right there. Get your tickets. And, and for those of you who are way smarter than me, we also have a QR code. I don't even know how to use it. But <laughs> a QR you can code. get them there, too. Yeah. Yeah. Take a picture or something. I don't know how It's going to be fire, people. It's, it, it's be one fire. thing. I know y'all love us because you keep liking us and sharing us and you keep us up in the top of the ratings and everything as we're growing. The I'm so excited to get to take the stage, if you will, uh, with my brother and us to get to look you in the eyeball when we're telling a story. Yes. That's fine. That's going to be so fun. So, and uh, so look forward to that. Patron members, thank you, thank you. Chase team. We couldn't do it without you. We couldn't do it without you. you. Chase team is on fire. And then you're getting another episode really soon. And we love you all. We appreciate each and every one of you. Thank you for tuning in. Hey, come back and listen to Archie Williams part two because there's going to be some audio clips. There's going to be all kinds of uh, discussions on everything else that happened. I'll give you one little teaser, y'all. I have a letter that you can't find anywhere else that is directly in uh, Archie Williams' hand that he sent to Barry Sheck in 1983 to get help with his case. And it is absolute fire and it will break your heart. Yeah. So powerful, but in a good way, it'll make you at the end of this story is beautiful, right? It's, it's love. And I'm Woody Overton and I'm Jim Chapman. We're your hosts of bloody Angola, a podcast, 142 years in the making the complete story of America's bloodiest prison. Peace. Peace. <laughs> That's Monday, Monday. Monday. Oh, Save big on brunch for mom. All in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for one twenty nine each. Then get flavorful Tyson natural boneless chicken breasts for two forty nine a pound. All with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.